Let's Connect podcast series is brought to you by Talent Talks and Life Online. Welcome. I'm Karen Cole, Editor-in-Chief of Talent Talks and Life Online. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Debbie Craig, ready to talk about why behavior and culture change is so hard. This is essentially episode one, peak performance and culture shift conversations. Debbie, it's wonderful to have you back again with us. Thanks, Karen. It's great to be here. And this, as you know, this is a huge passion of mine to learn and share this information. So thanks for being here. Fantastic. So Debbie, let's kick off with looking at, you know, the big question, why behavior change is actually so difficult. Well, I think if we all can just think back to the behaviors that we have tried to change over the years, and I think most of the common ones is your lovely diet, exercise, things that we want to change, or do we want to be more organized, more disciplined? Do we want to be a better listener? Do we want to be less busy? Do we want to be less frustrated? Do we want to procrastinate less? We think about changing behavior as something that progresses, but a lot of these things, it is a really difficult thing to be able to change, even to learn a new musical instrument or a new language. What does it actually take for us to make a change? And how many times do we often postpone or we push out or we give up or we just go back to default because it's easier? I think when we want to change something, our brains love the status quo. They love to be in comfort zone. They like to know and be certain. So as soon as you push them into discomfort, our brain goes into the stress state and it goes into resistance. And if you are a manager or a leader, how much time and energy and money have you spent trying to get other people to change? And most people would say it's really hard because people default back to what they do most of the time. And know that two thirds of change efforts fail at great costs to organization and to its people. I think we need to acknowledge that change is hard. It doesn't come naturally. We automatically resist at a sort of chemical level in our bees. And it takes a huge amount of vision and effort and commitment and practice and sacrifice and accountability and support to actually make the change. I'm working in organizations and with people all the time. And unless we can put in that investment and actually commit to changing, not just at a superficial level, things we want to do differently, but shift what, how our minds operate, how we think and build new neural paths and fire and wire those new neural paths and those new habits and those new routines until they become automatic, then we'll always default back to the hardwired, programmed habits that we continually look into. And let's just maybe take you through a little bit of a reflection exercise. So if I have to ask you how long do you think it takes to change a habit, I'm sure you're going to tell me it's about 21 days because that's the sort of common knowledge, right? That's the common metric, isn't it? It is, but there's been some obviously more recent research and actually the research shows that it takes on average between 18 and 254 days to automate a new chosen habit. So the whole idea is we want to get our brains to create hardwired neural paths until it's automated so we don't have to put the effort and the discipline in. We sort of wake up in the morning, we want to go to gym or our child comes up to us and we, we, we are a listener. We're not sort of frustrated that we now have to shift attention from work to a child. It becomes automatic. But it takes an average of about 66 days to change a habit. And that depends on how consistently the behavior is repeated in a consistent context. 
which means that if we want to get the lowest possible days to change a new habit to 18 days, then we have to do something consistently every single day, same way, same time, same context. But if you think about lives are so distracted and so busy that most often we fall off the wagon somewhere along the line, and that's why this gets pushed out, pushed out, pushed out. And when we're learning something completely new, it's easier. But when we're having to change a behavior or unlearn and relearn a new behavior, which is hardwired, that becomes really, really difficult, like trying to give up sugar <laughs> or trying to change procrastination or trying to not be a busy control freak, which um, I'm a recovering one of those. Now, if we want to change, change starts with changing our thoughts, right? Now, researchers concur that we have about 60 to 70,000 thoughts in a day. Can you imagine that? Some of us hyperactive thinkers, probably a little bit more. Now, if you think about it, how many of these thoughts today are the same or similar as the ones we had yesterday? And that's quite a, an interesting question. And I've asked this in many, many groups and many, many webinars, and it sort of ranges somewhere between 30 and 80%. But actually, the average person's thoughts and behaviors are typically 90% the same every day. And because of our neural responses are running on automatic, the second big question I want to just check in with you is how many of those 60 to 70,000 thoughts are more negative than positive? And if we think about now being in sort of COVID and post COVID and restructuring and stress and people leaving and problems in our lives and figuring out how to work in this new world. On average, about 70% of our thoughts are negative due to our natural stress and survival response and our social conditioning. But in extra stressful times like now, that number goes up. And on average, I've seen about 80, 85% negative thoughts. So if we're trying to change, but we're in a state of negativity and stress, on average, at a subconscious level, we cannot learn and change in a state of stress and in a state of negativity. It's sometimes hard to imagine what that window of change actually is. And if we listen to Dr. Joe Dispenza, one of my teachers and, and, and someone that I'm learning a lot from, he says that by 35, 95% of who we are is a set of memorized behaviors and emotional reactions that create an identity subconsciously. So if we want to shift, we have to shift the identity, how we think, how we act, how we feel, and continue that cycle with habits daily, consistently, every day, if we want to make that change and over what we call a 66-day plan. So with some of the organizations I've been working with now, we've got a lovely telecommunications company with a really strong inspirational visionary leader. We've set up a whole lot of 60, hashtag 66 day plans with the various leaders and teams to actually start making those habits a reality. That sounds fantastic, but 66 days, <clears throat> I think a lot of people will think, where do they start? How do you motivate yourself to kind of stick to something every day? I've known Dr. Joe Dispenza's work as well, but it's that process, you know, where he says you wake up in the morning and you automatically default to those thoughts. So where's the point where you start catching yourself and when does it start becoming easier to start catching yourself? How do you know when that's taken hold? So Karen, there's a number of different techniques, I suppose, and mechanisms to be able to accelerate and facilitate that change process. One of the key ones is what you call metacognition. It's above the thinking, the observer of the thinker. If we can develop an awareness of watching ourselves think, watching ourselves act, checking in and seeing how are we actually feeling, and then choose 
or, or recognize whether what are we how we're showing up is useful and constructive and getting us faster to where we want to go or whether what we are doing is taking us away from where we want to go and then able to choose to shift now sitting mindfully and being aware is one of those things doing journaling where you sort of have two columns in a journal and you write down all the things that you think are not helping you the negative stuff the frustrated thoughts the default behaviors and in a column on the right you you can have a look at all the positive affirming thoughts you have about yourself or your work or your future and slowly but surely over time with that level of awareness mindfulness and journaling you can start actually training your brain to notice and pay attention to the things that you are more important for you so the brain will pay attention to what you guide it to pay attention to so if you're in default your brain will pay attention to your subconscious programs that are running out and maybe it's thoughts about you not being good enough or not getting there or worried about failure or worried about the bonds or worried about your career a lot of that negativity happens subconsciously but if we start paying attention to that and choosing to shift it over time the brain will start building a new subconscious neural path and pay attention to opportunities to possibilities to solutions to building a team to creating a new way of getting to your vision so those are two ways that we can we can build those new neural paths and then the third way is really around understanding the power of the different brain waves and brain states and you know and we can learn and train our brains to go into what are called alpha brainwave state because usually we're in awake and alert state we're in beta state or in stress high beta state if we can train ourselves to alpha which is sort of alert yet relaxed state that state almost just before you sort of drifting off to sleep in that state we have access to our neural paths to our subconscious thinking to our emotions and in that state we can create a vision for ourselves and we can recondition ourselves over a period of time and through that process we can accelerate that change and then of course the the last one is around the habits and routines so small micro habits is the way to actually change if for example you always go and you make your cup of coffee in the morning or you and you put a teaspoon of sugar in it or you always have your coffee in the morning but you want to switch to tea just set up your process the night before so set up your tea bags next to your kettle or take the sugar away and not have any sugar in your house and then as you start to train your brain that this is what you've got to do and you do that every single day and you create a new habit in your routine then in, in 18 up to 20 days your brain has actually got used to that and starts to prefer the new way so those micro habits, micro routines, even in an organizational context, if in a meeting, start the meeting as an example with a, with a calm moment, with a mindful moment. Start the meeting with a check-in on how people are actually doing. It would like help people become observers of themselves before you get into the task-based agenda for the day. Like organizations are using safety moments. The, the new cool is having mindful moments or emotional check-in moments. And, you know, how we how we are really doing and connecting people at a deeper level. And, so and there's many other habits that, that organizations can build in in terms of how you check into the, the building in the morning or how you check in online. What do you need to say to each other or ask each other and build those new habits? 
I think that kind of leads into my next question because everything we've spoken about up to this point, it's a very individual practice and it really requires every single person to take accountability for that process. From an organizational perspective, when a leader listens to this, it almost seems insurmountable to then effect change at that micro level. First of all, take us through why it is so difficult. We know this. We know that most change efforts fail within organizations. Take us through some of the neuroscience behind or what, what's happening in that. What, what causes that failure? And if change is happening on such a micro level, how are we ever expected to affect that in mass? I think a lot of the focus on change and on shifting organizational culture has been sort of an outside-in approach and in a way a paternalistic approach. If the leaders of the organization have a vision for change and they say, if we tell people what they need to value and how they need to behave and we put together the posters and the workshops and the campaigns and the meetings and we give people performance feedback on those behaviors, they will change. But unfortunately, that's, that's a small percentage of people that actually will make that shift and probably less than about 20%. And as we know, two thirds of the culture change journeys fail to deliver the results, whether it is cultures or mergers or engagements of staff. And we have found, I mean, the research shows, contrary did a recent study during COVID, that the skills of a leader that to help people and organizations shift and change in this exponentially disruptive world, less than 15% of leaders have these skills. And these skills include being able to engage hearts and minds of individuals and being able to manage their own emotional and chemical responses to individuals in the team. So what we really want to start to do is change culture from the inside out, which means going back to, I'm gonna start individual and then into team and then to organization. If we can create an environment and an experience through workshop, through self-learning, through creating environments where people can self-reflect and choose and start creating those new neural paths, teach them how the brain works. And we are able to shift daily, daily, daily the way we think, feel and act. And we can actually change what we call our personality. Can we only then change our personal reality? So in order to change, we have to change how we identify. So what is our belief about ourselves, what we believe about ourselves in the world, how we feel as a result of this. And then, of course, those daily automatic habits. So in an organizational context, instead of going outside in, create environments, and, and I would really encourage where we've had the most results is at, in a team context where that team leader works with his team or her team and creates a new ways of work where we create space for people to be mindful, create space to give constructive feedback, create space for people to fail and experiment and almost train the brains into being more comfortable with uncertainty, more comfortable with change, more comfortable with the unknown. Because only if we can train the brains out of sort of that 0.05 second stress response to a difficult email, a customer problem, a staff that's now sick, we have to sort of calm those moments down and help individuals learn how to move out of the stress response and the limbic system response into a creative response and a resilient response using their prefrontal cortex and even moving into their frontal lobe to envision possibilities and opportunities. And we get everybody to train their brains like that, then that team's results will automatically start to shift. They will innovate more, they will collaborate more, they will utilize each other's strengths more, they will communicate better, they will have better compassion and intuition between each other. 
And we've seen this over and over again as those individual brains shift and then the behavior shift and we reward that new behavior and we don't punish the failures and the experiments that go wrong in the moments where we, <laughs> where we lose it, then, the, then we start to shift. And if that team shifts and people see those results in the next team and the next team and the next team, so that is what we're doing in our organizations that we're working with now is shifting from the inside out through training people on the brain, practicing what we call future capabilities, the capabilities that leaders need, such as curiosity is a major thing. How can we be curious about how we are showing up? How can we be curious about why someone in our team is behaving in a particular way or why a customer is you know, losing his call in terms of how what we've delivered? So if we can shift both the brain and we can shift those capabilities, we can build courage, we can build consciousness, we can build collaboration, which is from the eight C's that I talk about in previous podcasts of, of my book. And then we create habits and tools and routines, then we start to see the shift actually very rapidly. And it's amazing. One positive result leads to another positive result leads to another positive result. And we get that exponential effect. That sounds fantastic. And tell me through the work that you've done with these organizations and taking them through this process specifically, is there a successful versus unsuccessful way to manage and handle change? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's so many books written about change and and and, and critical success factors. But you know, bringing in the the neurochange angle and going back to something really basic around, you know, if we want to change, we have to change how we think, act, and feel. So maybe just for the audience, if you have to think about in your own life, think about the changes that you have made successfully, whether it's something physical or a career change or something you've created with your family or your friends. And think about an unsuccessful change where you've had an intention, but it didn't quite work out for whatever those reasons. And if we go to the next level down and we ask ourselves, why was the one successful and why was the other one unsuccessful? The common factors always seem to be a level of absolute non-negotiable decision and commitment and a, a sort of a, a consequence, a motivator and a consequence combination that has built, I'm not going back. There is only one way forward and I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to make the time. I'm going to get the support. I'm going to create the routine. I'm going to cut the excuses. Then that change happens. Now, when we don't change successfully, we kind of have a milder sort of desire or intent to change but we're too easily swayed to go back, especially under pressure and stress and when the chips are down to take the low risk paths and, and do that. So organizations in a larger context is exactly the same. You know, often an organization will put a leader in charge, they'll put a budget, they'll put a project team, but within a month or two or three, suddenly something else becomes more important. Suddenly budgets get allocated somewhere else. Then there's a restructure. Then there's a, a sudden customer opportunity or we lose a customer. Then all of a sudden the budget gets reallocated. People get reallocated. Leaders leave. Teams get tired. That ability to consistently commit, consistently invest and do the work that's required, which is having the honest conversations again and again and again, sitting down, having one-on-ones, sitting down, giving each other constructive, caring, coaching-based feedback on how they're showing up, being able to pull people together and, and have learning moments about what worked in the last month, what didn't work in the last month, how do we shift and get those micro shifts? What are the ways of work that we can get better at? How do we run our meetings more faster and more efficiently? 
How do we communicate and collaborate in a way that's efficient and effortless for all? And unless we can build that learning culture and commit to those time to do the work that's not obviously task-based and customer-based and operational, it's more subtle, then the change won't happen. So for me, if you have the right leader and the right team, you've got to build a roadmap to that change. And I used to say minimum, it needs to be a year roadmap. You need a, a core team. You need a budget for that whole year. You need to have multiple sessions with your executive team, with your first layer of leaders, with a core group of change champions, and train them first through very highly engaged sessions to understand the brain, to understand the capabilities, and particularly know where they're at and what their gaps are, and, and become willing and capable at actually giving and receiving feedback for growth and building those growth mindsets. So once we build the growth mindsets and we build the capabilities, then implementation of new ways of work and new performance systems and new reward systems and new ways of communicating, that becomes almost part of the course. We just, we get it done. But to try and put those in place without training the brain differently, we are doomed to a very small percentage of change. Absolutely. And I think it's so important what you've mentioned here. It's an everyday activity. It's not an end of the year team building exercise and it's not a monthly team check-in where we suddenly just check in on everyone's emotional well-being and you kind of go around the room and you tick that box. I think it is a very deliberate activity and I like the way that you have described that. But it does also involve leaders taking a lot of accountability for driving that process and for putting the, the right things in place to get that done. But again, the benefits, as you were mentioning, in terms of your speed to change in future, then your ability to have this team with a growth mindset where you can experiment, where you can innovate and you can drive results a lot quicker, definitely makes that short term kind of sacrifice worthwhile. So Debbie, just as we conclude today's session, do you have any tips or tools that we can use to help any of our listeners, whether they from an individual perspective or from a leadership perspective that are currently going through a change process that can really help themselves not only manage it better, but perhaps also accelerate it. Sure. Karen, what, I'll do a very short overview of what I call the six brain shifts that we're teaching executives and, and leaders at the moment, and then maybe do a very short little exercise, if, if, if you'd like that, on one of them, just so you can see how it works. That sounds fantastic. So, I mean, if you think about a day in the life of yourself and you're getting up in the morning and you do your normal sort of default behaviors, you make a cup of coffee, you feed the dog, you sort out your kids, and then you get off to work, whether it's walking down the passage or getting into your car. There's a couple of things that we can put in, in a little baby steps we can put in place to make sure we stay in the right state. So the first thing is intention and attention. So if we have an intention to how we want to show up in that day and the vision we want to create for our team, for our company, we need to wake up and pay attention to that intention. So whether it's a vision board or whether it's something on your phone or it's a picture or it's something that you just actively use in your imagination to imagine yourself being successful at that vision, being successful at showing up. So you're getting your mind, you're training your mind to pay attention to the vision rather than waking up and getting your phone and your to-do list and your distraction and then you start getting stressed and we start getting all the chemistry in our bodies, that's really paying attention to that. And the more times in a day that you can remind your, your brain to pay attention to the future and to what how you want to show up in your best version of yourself or your best version of your team, 
and get your team to pay attention to what you're creating, the more likely you are to create those neural paths. You know, the brain doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. So when we are in an alpha state or a mindful state and we're imagining this future, the brain builds the new neural paths. It actually builds the hardware we need to process data differently to create those possibilities. So that's the first one, intention and attention. The second one we've mentioned before is metacognition, which is becoming the witness, the observer, and journaling. So in the morning, you can set up your day by noticing what you'd like to do. At the end of the day, you check back on yourself or as many times as you can. How am I showing up? What worked, what didn't work? The third one there is to notice your physical, what we call coherence. It can be heart coherence, mind coherence, and it's if you're breathing, and your emotional state is as coherent or as rhythmic as possible and in balance and not out of balance. So when we are frustrated, it's out of balance and it's like driving a car with both the accelerator and brake on at the same time. And you can imagine if you do that, there's just going to be smoke and it's, it's going to break down over a period of time. So using our breathing, using what we call an elevated emotion like appreciation, calmness, and checking in with yourself, am I in the stress state or am I in this calm, creative state is, is really, really important. And we can do a little practice on that in a moment. The, the second last one is your refractory period, which is around managing your chemical response to stress and change. And we can't control many of these responses. We get that bad email or someone rushes into our stuff or we have an accident or something goes wrong. The body automatically just generates the stress response, the fight, flight and freeze and the cortisol and the chemicals rush through our systems and we go into a space where we're not quite balancing and seeing the world in a normal way. And there's a, a mismatch between reality and our perception. So we need to be able to find ways to, when we get that rush of stress, to walk, around, walk down the passage or walk out into the garden or take a few deep breaths and sort of bring that chemi chemistry back into a normal system so that you can get your body back into possibilities again. And then finally, it's the repetition. So little micro routines we've spoken about, a safety moment, a customer speak session, an emotional check-in, do those micro habits. So just to maybe end off and wrap up, if we just want to do a very sort of one minute, what we call a heart coherence exercise, it's really, very simple and it's sitting down in a relaxed body state with uncrossed arms and legs and the first thing you do is observe and observe your, your level of breathing and how deep and where are you breathing and how does your body feel and then start breathing deeper and slower than usual and do at least five breaths like that just deeper and slower than usual expanding your lungs your diaphragm your stomach and allow your body to relax as you do this. So when we slow down the outbreath, we actually shift our brains from a stress state to a creative state, from what we call a sympathetic nervous system state to a parasympathetic nervous system state. And that allows our organs to start regenerating. It allows our bodies to relax. It allows our thinking to start creating more possibilities in the imagination. And then the last step to the breathing is then to imagine yourself feeling appreciation for whatever it is, appreciation for yourself, for your body, for where you are, for what you have, for the people around you, for the opportunities. Now just focus on all the things you appreciate as you breathe in deeper and slower than usual. And if we do that for one minute and two minutes, maybe three minutes, 
what starts to happen over a period of time is that your heart rate starts to beat at a more rhythmic level. It's called your heart rate variance. And that heart rate variance, when it's rhythmic, sends a message to the brain, brain relaxes, the nervous system relaxes, you move into a state of possibility and creation. And it's had huge research, if you look at HeartMath Institute, the heartmath.com, that when we are able to create coherence, we are able to influence not just ourselves and our health, but our functioning, our ability to solve problems, our ability to connect with people, our intuition, and the cherry on top is we influence the heart rate variance of the people around us. So every leader, when you're working with a team or even on a meeting, your heart, your, your vagus nerve and the, the state of your heart coherence impacts those people. So we can create more coherence in an organization, in a team, when we all learn to practice this technique. I hope that helps. That helps. I feel fantastic after that. I was going through the through the motions as you were talking about them, and it, it definitely does. You can actually just feel the shift, can't you? It's amazing. And I did this in a room of, you know, 100 leaders earlier this week and, you know, just asked them after three minutes, how do they feel? And the whole mood in the room changed. And suddenly people were starting to connect and collaborate and think differently and think out the box. And I think we just these, these are neuroscience researched techniques that are absolutely critical for performance, for our brains, for our bodies, for our health for performance, for wellness, for innovation. Absolutely. Well, hopefully with the work that you do, we'll be seeing more and more of this coming through our organisations and indeed making the world a much better, more coherent, more collaborative, more calmer place to be. Debbie, thank you. I've really enjoyed our recording today. Thank you for, for just sharing your, your knowledge and insight. And yeah, I'd love to be able to share this information anywhere I can. Fantastic. Thank you.